Welcome back to Gilded Age, the podcast about how and why we're fucked. I'm Alex Koch. I'm Mark Colangelo. I'm Walker Bragman. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Sara Kamali, who is a holistic justice activist and a scholar of systemic inequities, white nationalism, and militant Islamism. Uh, her work examines how interlocking institutions of power oppress the many while maintaining systems of privilege for a select few. And Dr. Kamali has a, a new book out on University of California Press. Uh, it is called Homegrown Hate, Why White Nationalists and Militant Islamists Are Waging War Against the United States. So congratulations and welcome back to Go to Age, Dr. Kamali. Thank you so much to each of you for um, having me again. I remember last time we spoke, the book wasn't um, quite out yet, and you were kind enough to um, still have me on. And lo and behold, all these months later, we... I don't think any of us could have necessarily predicted January 6th, although um, my book um, does certainly speak to speak to the worldview of the of the insurrectionists themselves. But uh, before we begin talking about all that, I, I also want to say um, um, that I'm glad each of you are doing well. Sincerely. It, it's oh, well, been well, it has much. been a crazy time with the with the pandemic. How, how about you? Every, everybody in your family good? You good? Uh, thankfully, thankfully, yes. Yeah. How, how about each of you? How are you doing today? I should say. Yeah, doing pretty well. No complaints. It's, it's it's a gorgeous day outside. I'm actually living up in. I moved up to to Portland, Maine, and this is like the first day I can go outside in a t-shirt. Spring spring comes a little later here, so I I cannot complain. <laughs> how about you, Alex? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's just like it's it's spring here in New York. I I. I I got a roof access and it's, I was reading oh, your book in the sun today. So <laughs> um, I'm very seasonally affected um, both, both directions. So it's, yes. it's yeah. Ha having the sun out makes mm -hmm. me about 50% more happy. So yes, thank you for asking. It's a good day. <laughs> I'm glad, although I, I'm, I hope the, uh, the um, subject matter isn't necessarily heavy. I think it's more necessary than anything else of the book. Um, but uh, yeah, that was probably a little bit of a contrast sunshine and then, you know. Right. Um, but I, I'm used to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to it. I, I mean, I cover that a little bit in my reporting. And mm -hmm. I certainly I certainly deal with the political right all the time. So it, it's kind of, you know, as, as we'll talk about, there's a lot of, you know, it's all kind of connected, unfortunately. So there you go. So I think a good place to start is um, just just broadly, your book is a fascinating read and, and there's a, a bit of like an oddness to it because it seems to bring together these two phenomenon. It's almost like two books going on at once that are not really talked about together, uh, which are white nationalism and uh, militant Islam, Islam. But as you get into the book, you see that there are all these sort of connective tissues and um, maybe you could just talk about sort of what these two uh, ideologies have in common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, so the book is comparative. That doesn't mean that every single chapter um, 
uh, talks about both ideologies in tandem. What that does mean is that there's a section devoted to white nationalism, there's a section devoted to militant Islamism, and then there's a section devoted to comparative, um, to really um, uh, combing through, uh, presenting the comparisons as well as the uh, points of contrast quite specifically and purposefully. Um, and the reason for that is because when we look at our, which we're currently grappling with within the American uh, political system today, for when we look at the counterterrorism paradigm, specifically the uh, American policies that are meant to counter terrorism, um, we can see that it's very much still based on a post 9-11 framework and not able to address the post 1-6 reality. Um, so, of course, I finished... Um, writing and you know I could I couldn't touch the book anymore by the end of the, the uh, by towards the end of 2020 and then we had January 6th and the book came out in April um, and the reason why I set out to uh, for the comparative framework initially was to bring out the fact to to raise the awareness of white nationalism um, and to raise the profile of white nationalism and also um, discuss how the focus and the myopic focus of of um, how we're perceiving terrorism as a country and even as you know around the world specifically focused on militant Islamism really does a disservice to national security um, as well as social stability and economic prosperity. Um, so back to the back to the commonalities. What we can see um, between the ideologies of white nationalism, militant Islamism, is that it's very much predicated upon a common um, narrative of victimhood. So for white nationalists, that narrative of victimhood, that sense of being attacked, um, comes from. Uh, immigrants, as well as the demographic change within the United States, as well as in within many other parts of the world that are considered to actually be divinely or, you know, uh, meant to be white ethno states. And uh, we can see that demographic change within the United States because by 2050, um, so these are, you know, well, by 2050, the United States is supposed, it's, it's, it's projected to be, a, the adults are projected to be uh, percentage-wise, mainly people of color. That doesn't necessarily change the political dynamics, but there is a concern amongst white nationalists um, of, of being eradicated both numerically and then having, you know, the white race, the concept of the white race being exterminated, which is essentially white genocide, and then the white cultural um, institutions and framework also being nullified. With militant Islamists, there is that same sense of victimhood, but not, um, uh, not because of immigrants or people of color, but because of U.S.-led foreign policy um, in Muslim-majority nations. And if we're talking about, well, the book talks about uh, American citizens who are militant Islamists, well, then why would, why would American militant Islamists care what's happening um, outside of the United States? Well, I, as I discuss in the book, and perhaps, you know, if you want to, we can talk about that too, is that militant Islamists who are American very much identify with um, uh, Muslims in Muslim-majority countries rather than fellow Muslim Americans. There's that sense of being attacked. There's that fear of, uh, of being exterminated. There's a fear of a cultural um, cultural loss as well. So a lot, a lot of research went into this book. I mean, just, you know, as, I mean, yeah, your bibliography is quite long. Did, I mean, that's got to put you in, in sort of a, 
a difficult headspace to 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 even write something like this. I mean, this is these are some of the heaviest topics around, and and the violence and just the like warped mindset that um, the people that you're writing about have. Uh, violent. I mean, how did you how did you uh, find writing it? I mean, were you able to sort of compartmentalize or did you find yourself sort of making associations like day to day, like, like the, like when you see like 14, Oh, 14 words or like, you know, uh, mm. cause so, I, I find that sometimes when I work on an article and I've been working on it for quite some time, obviously not as long as you've been working on this book, but I find that it's, it takes a lot to like, separate my day-to-day from the thing that I've been working on. So just as a general question, you know, how did you maintain your sense of normalcy while writing a book on such a heavy topic? Well, the book really took about 12 years um, because of the so many iterations and because I wanted to capture um, not only how Donald Trump's presidency was um, harnessing white nationalist thought, but um, also capture the components um, that I felt were very important even after his um, 2020 uh, election loss. Um, So the sense of normalcy came from the purpose, the the, um, intention with which I wrote the book. It started to write the book so many years ago. I, I always wanted to find a book that really explained not only the Islamophobia and the systemic inequities within the current counterterrorism paradigm, but also the full scope and the many facets of both white nationalism and militant Islamism. And I couldn't, um, I never found it. So I decided to write it. And then um, that's really what kept me engaged um, throughout the process. And I do mention in the acknowledgements that it was a Sisyphus Sisyphean task at times, seemingly. Thankfully, the book was able to be published. And the reason for that is because, um, and of course now January 6th has thrust white nationalism into the spotlight, but really there wasn't any funding. People did not take me seriously. Um, of course, I am a, a um, uh, well, a, a lady. So that was also a ding against me in many areas, not in terms of actually engaging with people who would commit the violence and who were planning violence, who carried out violence, but actually um, within within uh, academic, civil society, you know, nonprofit, public sectors, people just um, saw, I think, perhaps a younger looking uh, girl and then said, well, gee, she's writing about this heavy topic. How, what, you know, I think that they were somewhat, more dismissive than perhaps they would have been had I been older and a man. I'm not assu- I'm not necessarily assuming that. It's just from you know kind of the questions that I got, etc. So really, it was it was um it was a lot of time and effort, and um, and uh, I kept on track by um uh, by simply remembering why I'm doing this. And, you know, the intention was was to provide the most comprehensive resource um, for anybody, academics, policymakers, you know, anybody, people, um, not necessarily who consider themselves activists, but people who want to um, be informed and remain engaged and um, and give them some hope as well and some constructive um, constructive uh, policies and, you know, simple things that we can do, seemingly simple things that we can do um, in order to counter um, what is now the greatest national security threat to the United States, as well as to many places in the, in the, in the around the world. And on that note, I'm 
Um, I'm sorry if I'm going to be taking up too much of your time and, and, and confusing the editing process, but I really would like to hear, um, you know, Alex, from your experience too, what, what's your process like? Are you able to silo, um, uh, silo different, you know, silo your, your subject material, or is it also all pervasive? Kind of like what uh, Walker was mentioning. Yeah. I mean, it's a little of both. Um, I mean, I've been covering the, you know, the right wing for my whole career, but originally that mm -hmm. was more just politics, but now as, mm -hmm. as things are getting even more radicalized, you know, a lot of the politics overlap with white nationalism and mm -hmm. sometimes epitomize white nationalism. So, mm -hmm. um, but, but actually last year, towards the end of the year, I started to get really overwhelmed with all of it. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, this was, yeah, this is even after the election, but it was all the, just all the political crap and all, all the, you know, all, all the lawsuits and trying to, trying to overturn the election. And the a lot of the same people are participating in white nationalist stuff. And it was just getting so toxic. And I, I just had to limit my Twitter usage. Like I, I don't, that's the only social media I have. And I had to vastly cut down. Um, and, mm -hmm. and then I, I do have a different, like my job job. Um, I, I cover the far right and, you know, like I have a separate email account for that, which does, I don't get notifications on my, uh, on my personal phone. So there are ways to kind of, yeah, cut that off when you don't, when you can't handle it, you don't want it. But, um, mm -hmm. so I, I, unfortunately, you know, I, I have to limit my intake sometimes of, of just media, um, even though I am in the media and, you know, yeah. so I think that's a lot of people probably, maybe you have to do that. You know, it might be the only way to kind of have to, to have it as a regular part of your life is to actually cut it off sometimes. Mm -hmm. And especially, mm -hmm. especially when it's current events that you're writing about, it's, it's just even more kind of inescapable. Uh, it's nice to like w Walker and I uh, late in 2020 did a, did a piece on the, uh, the Shinnecock out, out in, uh, in the Hamptons in the reservation. So a piece like that is, is almost a bit of uh, escapism to be able to throw yourself in a story like that. Cause it's not, you know, on the news and on Twitter 24 seven, but honestly, those are my favorite stories to write. Yeah. Uh, the ones that aren't like super timely, but can, or that can, that can sort of exist outside the news cycle. Um, yeah. However, your, your piece on the Shinnecock nation, uh, it, it d directly involves white supremacy. Oh, um, absolutely. Because of for, the, obviously sure. the history. So there, there are very sinister. At, an inst that, at a but, real um, institutional level. I mean, that's, and that, that was something that yes. I think that your book handles really well is how institutionalized this, this white supremacy is. Um, but we, we can get to that later when we talk about the, uh, yeah. the counterterrorism. I was, I was interested in asking about, um, um, women and uh, misogyny within the the white power white supremacy movement um because obviously you know uh they're integral to this this goal of of uh you know carrying the torch of the the white white race and you know the children part of the the 14 words you know they're they're an essential part of this but i wonder if you had any kind of perspective about how uh how women within the movement think about themselves and their role in it um, or how, how they're, how they're treated because yeah, it does seem like there's a lot of misogyny baked into this ideology. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. And I was going to ask you specifically, um, about your own experiences mm -hmm. and, uh, mitigating the stress. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you jumped in to answer. Thank you. Um, it's just nice to have a conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. Can, okay. there's no script. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so about, about um, uh, women in particular. So the media landscape as, um, and perhaps you can even push back on this assertion, but the media landscape currently does not allow for m m much nuance. Um, so oftentimes when we, when we discuss white nationalism or when white nationalism is being discussed, um, it's either through, you know, whatever's going on with the current, um, kerfuffles in, uh, Congress and the GOP at large, but also then, um, uh, specific targets of the time. Um, so as I discussed in the book, uh, the targets of white nationalism actually include um, not only Black people, but also um, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, um, Latinx Americans, Muslim Americans. Um, um, so there's a whole range and, and also uh, women and uh, members of the queer community as well. Um, and um, and also a mix, you know, mix thereof. So when we when we look at the role of women, both as targets of white nationalists, but also how they have supported white nationalist ideology as well as the organizations, um, it's a really interesting. Um, there's a really interesting dynamic at play. Because as you mentioned, uh, the 14 words, the 14 words were penned in, it's a, it's a motto essentially, uh, well, it is a mo the motto of the of white nationalism and uh, the, the um, ethos of it has, has always been encompassed within um, the ideology, but it was articulated by David Lane in 1988, who was a very prominent white nationalist um, whom I discuss um, at length in the book. And uh, the 14 words are, we must we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And there is a version of that also that um, specifically talks about women's role as vessels, essentially. And we can see that women are targets of white nationalists, not only as, in, not only, you know, as from different facets like incel culture, but also um, really their agency is very much diminished. But at the same time, there have been very prominent women uh, within white nationalism who have uh, really promoted um, certain um, aspects of the ideology, like Elsa Christensen, who's one person I, I write about in, in, in Homegrown Hate, and she was a, 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 a proponent of Odinism and Wotanism, essentially, which is also something that David Lane um, uh, really shaped and formulated, so a, a new take on the pagan um, religion and promoted a certain concept of whiteness, and she really um, promoted that during uh, within prisons, and so I think maybe in the ninth, you know, early twentieth century, um, we have the fear, I guess, fear of um, nation of Islam being pro promoted within prison system. But then, actually, in the latter half of the twentieth century, and uh, even today, now. Um, Odinism or Wotanism is actually one of the fastest spreading religions within the uh, carceral uh, carceral population. So it's a really interesting dynamic how um, women, well, yeah, you know, women are both um, subjected to misogyny, but then also very much integral to um, promoting the ideologies of white nationalism. And that really lends 
you know, that's a really great point that you bring that up because not only does it lend to comparisons between white nationalists and militant Islamists and how militant Islamists actually, you know, women also play the same dynamic with both being targets of militant Islamism, but also um, proponents of militant Islamism and integral to the proselytization and, um, and promotion of ideas, um, but also how complex both of these ideologies are. So it's not just, you know, and I'm not I'm not discarding or dis, discarding um, uh, Black Americans specifically. I'm just saying that we really, when we think about how to counter these ideologies, how to combat it, how to effectively uh, construct a framework that's going to be purposeful and effective, with um, it has to address the full scope of this um, all all of the facets of the ideology. Interesting. And, and uh, um, sorry, before, uh, before we move on to Alex's question, I just want to make um, one point because I think terms are important. I think I, I said white um, power there. You use white nationalism. And um, we also use uh, militant, militant Islamism instead of something like you know, jihad. So mm-hmm. I think um, maybe really quickly it'd be worth just explaining um, those terms. White nationalism is uh, the ideology that encompasses white supremacy. And because uh, the belief that white there is a white race and um, white people are uh, biologically, culturally, and even perhaps divinely superior, um, they are entitled to a white ethnostate. Well, how that white ethnostate is conceived is up for interpretation. So people of color and anybody who's considered non-white either is subjugated um, to subcaste or second class citizenship or um, essentially exterminated. Um, The reason I use white nationalism as opposed to white supremacy and white power even is that white nationalism is the natural extension of white supremacy ideology. Um, So it really is a a broader term and white power is uh, is more of a counterpoint to the black power movement and doesn't necessarily get to the actual political aims of the ideology. Um, so it's it's limiting in that's in that in that respect. Yeah, and in terms of yeah, and you're there, there's a good section at the end of the intro that ha- that defines a lot of these terms. That's very helpful. And I, you know, having been in academia myself, I, I kind of I always enjoy those kinds of things. Um, <laughs> Alex too is Alex is a, is a. a resident PhD. Yeah, PhD in music composition. So it's not totally relevant to today's discussion, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's there was something useful about it over the six and a half years I spent uh, doing it. So still trying to figure that one out. Um, but no, it was fun. Uh, but in terms of the two main subjects of the book, um, I guess I first just want to point out something that you were very clear about in the book, which is that um, the biggest terror threat in the United States is absolutely white nationalism. Um, the majority of the terrorist events that happen on U.S. soil are perpetrated by white nationalists, and the majority of the deaths as a result of those terrorist events are also um, you know, are perpetrated by white nationalists. So um, while the two groups obviously have a lot in common, uh, which I wasn't aware of until I read the book and I've read your other articles, um, you know, there is a discrepancy in, in the, the level of the threat to U.S., to, to Americans living in the U.S. Um, but so in terms of the two groups, I, I found it interesting. I never really, I guess it seems logical, but I hadn't really compared like the idea of a caliphate with the idea of a white ethnostate, but it is pretty, it, as you lay out, I mean, it's kind of the same idea. Um, 
so that's one thing that that you know is central to the book. Um, both want an ethnostate, a different ethnostate. Um, but one of the differences that I thought was was interesting is that you know the the, the white nationalists' um, desire for an ethnostate is based on these kind of white grievances that have no bearing in reality. Um, you know, the idea, first of all, that you might be threatened by a, a slight uptick in the percentage of people of color in your, in your country, like that, that is actually something to be worried about is, is absurd. Um, but it's also, I mean, a lot of this is based on propaganda, um, you know, about, about losing your culture somehow and all, the, all these things. Um, and then in terms of the, the militant Islamists who reside in America and abroad, um, you talk about how a lot of that is sort of their radicalization was uh, a direct result of, of the American, uh, you know, far, American uh, military power uh, in their regions. A lot of the drones, uh, especially, you know, they expanded under under Obama and things like that. So, so in other words, uh, this is this is in no way. Um, I think terrorism is terrorism, right? Like it's it's all evil, but it's kind of like the motivation behind the Islamists, uh, the militant Islamists, is actually rooted in in kind of global foreign policy realities and then the white nationalist is is based on a bunch of propaganda and and kind of absurd cultural grievances um so that's more of a statement but what do you think about that distinction um well i'd like to pick up on on uh these are all very important um points and i'm um thank you for taking the time to to read the book as well as the articles um it's always um, well, you know, books should be read and uh, Jay Gatsby, people shouldn't be like Jay Gatsby, you know, keeping those books closed up. Um, <laughs> so I like to point out just a few things and I don't mean to be so, the reason why I'm very intentional um, about the terminology is because there are so many words being bandied about um, that uh, I'm, I really wanted to make sure that the reader knew what um, I was talking about throughout. Um, so when you, just to go back to what you said about um, both white nationalists and militant Islamists want an ethno state, well, actually Muslims, uh, the concept of ethnicity doesn't necessarily really apply really to um, Islam, both in the militant Islamist ideology and in the Islam that, you know, 2 billion people practice in various, various expressions of that. So I would say that they both really want a territory. Okay. So territories, perhaps, you know, political powers um, more important than, than um, just different visions right. of political power sense. and territory. Yeah. Um, so that's a really interesting uh, um um, again, dynamic that you bring up in terms of uh, white nationalists and, and their grievances and their, also their fears, not necessarily based in fact, um, whereas militant Islamists, you know, have, have a um, perhaps seemingly more legitimate set of grievances. But what I set out in the book to say is that no matter what one thinks about these ideologies, and uh, it is to enter into the worldview and see the enter into the worldview of these um, um, these terrorists and would be terrorists themselves and the people who would commit violence and, and who and who would seek harm to the United States. Um, so I would say actually that the demographic changes, even though it may seem somewhat. Uh, even flippant to be aggrieved to this extent about them. I think that when we when we enact empathy, um, 
which is needed not only to understand terrorism, but also to combat and counter it, then we can see that, well, wait a second, you know, this is a very scary thing for white nationalists. I'm not saying that it's not to condone or support their worldview, it's really to understand it. And we can see the same type of fear mongering and also fear fearfulness of um, uh, immigration as well as the numerical rise of people of color by um, what you know Tucker Carlson has recently been uh, saying about the great replacement theory etc so that's just happened within two weeks or we're recording this in May 2021 and this you know great replacement theory is also a concept that I discussed in the book as well um, towards the end and the idea of being replaced the idea of white genocide which is a chapter title um, also is is very real so the point is whether or not you know not if we as people who are not white nationalists um uh, think that these are legitimate fears, but to understand why they are legitimate fears for white nationalists and how they are perceived to be legitimate fears. That being said, I would also perhaps just like to shade this in a different way. We can, you know, um, well, anyway, just to bring up a different kind of um, a perspective on the militant Islamist grievances is I think this is actually what makes it so complicated um, when we're discussing either or both. So when we're discussing militant Islamism, we're saying, well, hold on, they're actually, militant Islamists are also uh, uh, propagandizing essentially US-led wars in, in Muslim-majority countries. But the, the problem is then, is that if somebody else also says, who's not a militant Islamist, who may be Muslim American, may be Muslim, uh, may, may not even be Muslim, says, well, wait a second, I don't agree with US foreign policy. I think the drone should stop, which is actually what's been happening in the past um, during Biden's administration. He's actually slowly uh, weaning away drones. Um, and, uh, you know, if there was anything in the post 9-11 paradigm that where one would speak out against these things, it would be seen seen as um, unpatriotic and actually in allegiance to militant Islamists. So there's a there there are a lot of complicating factors. Um, and I, I would be. I would be remiss not to point out that many people are aggrieved by U.S. foreign policy, particularly within Muslim majority countries. Um, and that certainly does not make one in any way a supporter, ally, or condoner of militant Islamism. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important for us to be able to have those conversations within, you know, policy making, within academia, within just normal, within the media, within um, uh, within the, our own um, homes amongst friends, and say, well, wait a second, let's challenge these ideas, and that doesn't make me any less patriotic or any, you know. Anyway. Absolutely, and uh, you brought up the um, the uh, counterterrorism paradigm. Um, so the, the Department of Homeland Security recently dedicated an arm of uh, its in, uh, intelligence division to fighting domestic terrorism, and they actually called out white supremacy specifically. Um, so I guess, do you? How do you perceive uh, the Biden administration? Um, how they're handling uh, white nationalism, and you know, are you optimistic uh, that they're starting to shift this this counterterrorism paradigm? Um, 
start. <laughs> it's, it's a good start. And so we really do, I mean, it can be like an oh, duh moment, you know, oh, duh, you know, that kind of thing post January 6th. But we really have to, um, the fact that Biden mentioned um, uh, white supremacy, I think, um, specifically within uh, his within his, uh, during his inaugural address, and then the fact that with the uh, joint session of Congress, he um, said that white supremacy is terrorism, um, and the fact that the Department of Homeland Security. Um, under Secretary Mayorkas is, um, you know, undergoing or underwent a review of white nationalism within its uh, within its ranks, as did the um, Department of De the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. He ordered a stand down as well to review white nationalism. Um, is a good start. Um, there is much to be done, and really, these have to happen simultaneously, um, and. It may seem um, it may seem too onerous, but it's really the only way. So it's not necessarily just about refocusing. It's also about taking away the, for example, just one example, joint terrorism task forces that are a network of federal, state, local, tribal um, uh, law enforcement um, networks essentially that are actually have been used to surveil Muslim Americans very deliberately post 9-11. All of that has to be reoriented. The funding has to be re reprioritized. Um, and I think that there is a lot to be done um, in, in very many ways um, throughout government specifically, and especially in terms of policy, not talking about counterterrorism laws, talking about where the money goes and how many people are allocated and um, how many people are allocated to actually looking at this, uh, the, 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 the phenomenon and the security threat of white nationalism specifically. There also needs to a lot to be done in order to dismantle the Islamophobia component because otherwise, we're simply continuing to criminalize innocent people whilst also um, not fully engaging um, with um, addressing the many facets of white nationalism. And it really does a disservice if we do not dismantle the Islamophobia component um, of the current security of the current security paradigm, then we're really doing a disservice to our own national security within and outside our borders. So I'd like to I'd like to ask, um, in a in a sense, uh, our response to the perceived threat of uh, militant Islam has has driven uh, recruitment. I mean, the, our our military adventurism overseas has driven recruitment. Do you worry that there's a way that we could that our that if we if we respond improperly to the domestic threat of white nationalism, uh, that we could end up fueling its its rise. Oh, okay, Alex, did you want to get in there with a question too, before I answer? Uh, um, if you'd rather do that first, I was going to ask you about um, the the different um, statutes uh, and the difference between domestic terrorists and homegrown terrorists and how, um, and the problematic nature of that distinction. Okay, let me be clear here. I wanna be very clear that militant Islamism is 
a security threat to many countries around the world. I'm not dismissing it. What I am saying is that it is not a great, it is not as great of a threat as it has been portrayed that um, within the United States, that the criminalization of Muslim Americans specifically has really led to a great deal of social harms, as well as really money not being put towards preventing January 6th. And um, that U.S. foreign policy has certainly led to grievances around the world that continue to fuel propaganda um, and um, garner support for militant Islamist ideology around the world. Okay, so that being said, uh, Walker, you asked if that the the, the mishandling, perhaps, uh, or um, potential mishandling of white nationalism can fuel its rise here. In, well, because uh, you you talk about holistic justice and and um, and that and your your approach to addressing this threat seems to me at least very reasonable. If we don't. If, but if we don't get it right, do you think that there's that there's a, a a way that we could fuel this problem if we don't ad adopt a holistic justice approach? Well, definitely, we'll be fueled if we don't adopt what the, the policies that I that I the the, the um, ethos and the framework that I discussed in the conclusion. There's no doubt about that. Um, what will also be problematic currently within the very specific um, time within the present moment, I should say, um, is the um, overlapping and the rise of the, the overtaking of the far right within the Republican Party. And certainly our two-party system does not allow necessarily for those Republicans who do not, who have disavowed Trump to actually engage and participate in a meaningful policy level as we have seen with um, Liz Cheney most recently. Um, so I think that's going to be um, very problematic in terms of combating white nationalism um, within uh, policymaking and within government and even certainly within the um, armed forces and law enforcement. That, of course, does not mean that everybody in uh, armed forces in the armed forces and um, law enforcement and serving our country in that way is white nationalist. But there is a disproportionate um number of people who certainly um, are ideologically um, um, ideological supporters of white nationalist tenants. And um, back to your point, Alex, oh, does that answer your question, Walker? Do you have a follow-up? Yeah, I, I just, you know, because it, it occurred to me that, um, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm sort of jumping all over the place in your book, but uh, it occurred to me, you talk about um, lone wolves and how they, they're they're really there's like cheerleading section online that the internet serves as like amplification and people who wouldn't necessarily themselves carry out acts of violence, but support acts of violence. And the, the fact that the fact that uh, one of our political parties is being overtaken by just an openly white nationalist uh, movement. I mean, it seems, it seems to me that there will be people who, if we don't, if we don't respond to this immediately and thoroughly, uh, that our sort of politics will end up amplifying it and turning it political, like, oh, it's, 
you know, oh, it's just something, this is just something liberals don't like. So I'm, I'm now for it. And so it, it occurs to me because this, as, as I think you make clear, this is not an ideology we can sort of mess around with. This is a serious threat to our national security. It's not just a difference of opinion. It's a, it's an existential threat to people of color. And with the phenomena of, of, of ghost skins, which we um, sort of uh, started to touch on uh, these people who are well trained, who have access to um, to weapons and can pass these these skills along. I mean, it's it's prevalent um, in a uh, in I, I don't know how large within you know the military and large and law enforcement this this ideology has pervaded it. It's probably not huge numbers, but it's it's big enough. It's proportionate. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so perhaps and we've seen that definitely in January 6th, yeah, where a lot of the people who were involved in the insurrection were actually former and present members of the uh, armed forces and, and law enforcement. Sorry, Walker. Uh, uh, Alex, I didn't forget your question. I, okay. Yes, so, Walker? So I just wanted to say, so perhaps you could talk a little bit more about holistic justice and how and how the approach is, is, um, would differ from what we're currently doing. And I know, I'm sure, I think that sort of gets into Alex's question as well. So perhaps there's a way to... Yeah. So um, currently, and again, I'm talking about a lot of um, problems here, but the reason we need to actually understand what the problems are in order to focus on the solutions to them is that um, uh, not only is there an asymmetric perception of terrorist threat, which is currently now being uh, refocused, perhaps not as robustly, but I can get to that in a little bit. Um, but there is certainly a definitional differentiation. Um, and I think that's changing now, but between um, domestic terrorists and homegrown violent extremists. So domestic terrorists are um, every agency essentially has a somewhat different def- definition. Um, but if we look at the Patriot Act, for example, domestic terrorists are those people who would um, uh, are waging essentially political violence or perpetrating uh, violence uh, for political aims within the United States. And um, the way that it's defined essentially points to non-militant Islamists. So there's no outside influence. Homegrown violent, whereas homegrown violent extremists do have a quote unquote foreign influence. Now, in the last chapter of the book, again, it's very purposeful and intentional. Um, I discuss how white nationalism is also transnational. So the ideas, again, are not are not confined to borders within the United States, but also very prevalent among social media, um, and 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 have been also, I wouldn't say imported, but have found. White nationalist ideologies found kinship in a transnational manner, not only because of um, not only because of um, social media in the present day, but also in terms of media publications, um, radio programs. There's there's a very deliberate network of media, um, certainly within the last century, that has allowed for cross-pollination of ideas, allowed for a cross-pollination of membership, allowed for organizations to communicate each other, communicate with each other, and really allowed for a solidification of ideas around the world. Um, uh, you know, even if we look at Christian identity, for example, and um, how even the concept of eugenics, actually going even further back, um, has uh, gained prominence in uh, Northern and Western Europe, and then really, um, migrated here and found foundation within the United States, um, for example. 
Um, and the reason I'm talking about that is because we cannot, um, the the framework of holistic justice and, and the proposals um, that it that it seeks to advance cannot be implemented if we do not recognize um, these disparities and if we do not recognize also the the full scope of white nationalism as well as the dynamics of militant Islamism. Um, so when we think about what actually needs to be done and what what holistic justice is, so. Holistic basically is comp means comprehensive. Justice is well, justice. So it's a, it's an equitable equitable distribution of um, resources and benefits and opportunities, but also um, and also ensuring that every community across the spectrum of identities, not only skin color, um, uh, is able to prosper and and um, and live safely within the United States as well and around the world. So holistic justice is essentially a, an advancement. It's a new counterterrorism framework that really takes into account the disparities of the current paradigm and also seeks to redress them based on not only policies from the federal from you know federal government, so top down, but also seeks to empower a grassroots movement um, amongst the historically marginalized. Um, so activists, nonprofits, public sector, people who are, you know, pe people on the ground um, across historically marginalized identities. And there needs to be really a, a, a dual component, simultaneous component. We cannot have policies, um, for example, that take away the, the, um, uh, foreign terrorist organization designations and then not have um, grassroots movements targeting white nationalist hate within their local context. So holistic justice is a counterterrorism uh, framework that works from the top down as well as the bottom up and focuses on empathy and anti-oppression as well as um, as well as uh, specific policies um, in order to um, advance these goals. Um, so from the federal point of view, of course, I'm, I've discussed um, de-escalating uh, or essentially excising the Islamophobia component of um, current counterterrorism paradigm and reprioritizing and re reorienting current initiatives towards white nationalists. Um, some of these very briefly um, include um, include joint terrorism task forces that are specifically um, targeting white nationalists and very specific definition of white nationalists um, on social media, for example, um, on online hate, online harms. Um, there needs to be a, an interagency oversight as well, um, not only um, uh, within, for example, the uh, Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, which oversees the FBI and you know the um, Office for the Director of National Intelligence, essentially also need to um, release annual reports. And I think that's just recently some some version of that just recently been released. I think on Friday, so we're talking about mid May here. Um, and um, there needs to be uh, a much more robust resources placed um, um, are targeting white nationalism specifically. And also there really, 
we can also get into this a little bit. This is more definitional, so perhaps a little more academic, but important nevertheless, because currently not only is there a disparity between domestic um, domestic terrorism and homegrown violent extremism, there's also disparity between domestic terrorism and then international terrorism, whereas everything really now is transnational because of social media and because of the way that we communicate. Um, so that's certainly a delineation that I think is not necessarily helpful, uh, particularly the way that the current laws are in place. If something happens within borders, can't necessarily view these, you know, these um, different groups, even like QAnon, for example, or Adam Waffen Division, for example, um, as um, as transnational threats. So there needs to be a reconfiguration of that dynamic. And certainly the resources that are currently put in place to target foreign terrorist organizations um, and even like specially designated terrorist groups, that's really not necessarily productive in terms of an effective counterterrorism framework. Um, Within the component of empathy, so not only did I discuss that in terms of um, understanding terrorist worldview, but also there needs to be empathy in terms of um, understanding each other as citizens. Um, and really that needs to state level curriculum. And of course, we're currently having this debate um, about critical race theory, but there really needs to be a holistic justice curriculum where we're learning about um, histories of, of marginalized groups and also of, of the fluidity of white whiteness itself within the context of, you know, of our curricula from K through 12, as well as higher education. And that's something that really needs to be mandated from the state. Um, and, and I think that that will, you know, not just academic learning and reading a book, but experiential learning where people are engaged in their communities and there's some type of, you know, active component about, um, um, getting to know about each other, because as, as you all each well know, you know, we have different bubbles of, um, everything can be so tailored to our own preferences that we're not, nobody really needs to be challenged anymore based on their ideas or not even challenged in terms of, you know, somebody saying, no, why are you believing that? But in terms of just being exposed to differences of opinions and, and, and people who are different in any way than us. Um, so that's incredibly important because when we're thinking about how, the uh, underlying axis of, uh, of white nationalism is essentially the the, the socio political construct of race, which is which is false, and then the very dangerous and violent reality of racism. And if we don't learn about you know how race came to be as a political construct and how it results in racism um, and all those other types of um, oppressions along the spectrums of identity, then we're never going to be able to actually um, engage with each other and learn about each other and learn essentially to respect each other. Um, there's always going to be barriers that are going to be uh, leveraged for hate. And then lastly, the um, anti-oppression component is just what I mentioned before about empowering individuals on the ground. Um, so there really needs to be um, solidarity amongst marginalized communities. Um, and that, and uh, in order to, um, center their missions on, on countering white nationalist hate in their local context. And very often um, community members um, certainly experience that, have certainly experienced white nationalist hate in many different um, expressions and um, they would know best how to, how to target that. And, to, uh, and, you know, they really need resources in order to do that. Just want to uh, re-emphasize some of what you had said earlier about um, our policies being wrong 
and a couple a couple things that were um, interesting to to be reminded of or to learn initially. Um, first, that uh, in two thousand nine, I believe he was an FBI agent. Daryl Johnson put out a report. DHS. I'm sorry, yeah. So he was part of the Homeland Security Department. Okay, so he put out a report in two thousand nine. Um, you know realistically assessing white nationalism as an extremely dangerous terror threat in the U.S. And then this is under the Obama administration, the first year of, the, of his administration. The Secretary Janet Napolitano uh, killed the report, um, defunded, or at least the government defunded, massively defunded a program that was tracking white nationalism. Uh, and I believe Napolitano even apologized for the report. Two veterans groups. And so what um, Johnson's report, yeah, linked um, right-wing extremism with the terminology in the report and uh, specifically linked linked that specifically to veterans groups and armed forces. And so, uh, yes, and then lo and behold, um, you know, uh, I'm sure it's bittersweet for him. Mm -hmm. Now we're, now the uh, government's um, reprioritizing that. To what extent has yet to be seen? It's yeah. really interesting too because this is what happens with wildfires, for example. I mean, there's you know the uh, many um, indigenous populations. Um, well, speaking uh, within California, many indigenous populations would would uh, systematically burn, etc. And that was um, well when when uh, genocide of indigenous Americans happened. Many different nations. Um, those techniques to preserve the land and safeguard the land and protect the environment all, all went away. Um, and now the same policies are being reinstituted. So very often, unfortunately, the people who are speaking um, to safeguard communities are, are often undermined and um, their policies are, are being reinstituted. Yeah. And then under Trump, of course, he defunded even more some of those important programs. And then, you know, there was censorship within some of these departments to not even explicitly name, um, name white nationalists and things because they're part of Trump's perceived voter base. And he, he personally, uh, and his, his probably Stephen Miller and the other people personally uh, intervened to prevent this kind of language from getting out to the public. And then of course, you know, the culmination of course is January 6th, but we had, um, uh, 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 you know, in between a bunch of other extremists, there were plenty of, you know, explicitly white nationalist people. Uh, and then there are, you know, QAnon folks who are sort of, it's kind of an anti-Semitic, it's based on an anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy about Jews. So anyway, um, you know, of course that's going to happen when you don't treat the problem and you don't listen, you don't yes. believe the problem exists. Right. And then of course, you know, Donald Trump as president harnessed the rhetoric of white nationalists uh, for political purposes as well. And this is not new to the United States. It's not like, well, gee, we just have this white nationalist problem all of a sudden and it happened with Trump. No, um, I've discussed that uh, in the book, but also um, in more recent articles as well that, for example, a hundred years ago, um, uh, you know, 1920s, we, the KKK had the largest march uh, on Washington, right near the White, White House. Um, and uh, so many people within all levels of government were actually um, affiliated with the KKK at the time. So this notion that um, there's recently been a push to dismiss 
systemic racism and invalidated as a concept, but really that's why the book focuses so much on the institutional dynamics. It's not to condemn anybody, it's really to understand how the dynamics of government, of different systems of power have um, really um, dismissed white nationalism, but also have allowed it to flourish resulting in January 6th. And just on that quick, quick, quickly, I, um, um, white nationalists, the way that I categorize them in the book are uh, anti-government, racist, religiously racist. So there's different religions that support and um, adhere to uh, racism. And then there's conspiracy theory oriented uh, worldviews. So all of those four elements, um, there can be a combination thereof within white nationalist thought. And then I break down the groups for anybody who's interested. Yeah. And there's almost, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but there's almost an intersectionality between the people who hate, who are full of hate and express their hate. And as you say, like conspiracy theory is, is central to white nationalism and to fascism. You know, the Nazis were, were exploiting conspiracy theories to manipulate the people. Um, and now we see this QAnon movement that is entirely based on conspiracies that are almost all kind of considered far right and, and often relate to pop far right politics. Um, so that's, and then you have, we, you mentioned incels at the beginning and something I learned from your book and also from Talia Lavin's recent book um, is that, you know, a lot of incels are also a very radical right wing people. There's a lot of incels who are also white nationalist. So it is interesting to kind of see this, this hate that sort of like is slightly amorphous and might go into one box and another, but a lot of times there's, there's, there's different people who have, who are, hate different, many different types of people. Uh, you have, you know, Wotanism, which is like opposed to Christianity and Christian identity and sort of even into the evangelical space, but there's this, this, you know, uh, shared, um, there, you know, the hate has brought them together um, <laughs> in a certain way, and it's it's interesting to just see all these sort of complex beliefs and and uh, bounce off each other and how the how the dynamics kind of play out. And also, it's um, to Alex's point about incels. You know, I just anecdotally I hear people dismiss all this all the time by saying, "Oh, the, you know, these people they're they're just lonely, they're just lost, they're just." Uh, uh, they're just confused. Um, you know, they're not dangerous. This isn't a real threat. They're, just, you know, they're, they're these jokers. And um, uh, reading the book really kind of um, wipes that that notion away and kind of affirms that yeah, we're right to be <laughs> to be worried about this sort of thing. Well, in a way, the sort of memification of the far right is a is sort of PR for it, right? Like it's a yeah. it's a way to cover the the seriousness of the threat in like trolling and jokes so don't take it too seriously but it is really it is really serious because underneath it there you know if you push if you I, at least i've found through some of um my interactions with with people on who are you know in that the the second you you poke at it a little bit you, you reveal underneath it is there is a serious ideology there and that that's very frightening uh, the same tactics have been used um, uh, previously many times um, within conflict specific um, Rwandan genocide, for example, um, in the 90s. Uh, very often the perpetrators of the genocide would um, make jokes about the uh, people they targeted. And so this, this, 
the minimizing, the dehumanization, certainly, but also the minimizing of the threat of violence um, is certainly a tactic of, of warfare and one that should not be dismissed. And again, um, you know, the book starts and ends with empathy on, on, uh, in different in different forms. And there's, again, a very deliberate, purposeful reason to do that is because, um, as I've mentioned earlier, when I first started to write the book, the, the, the very notion of white nationalist terrorism was dismissed repeatedly. Um, and um, I'm certainly not here to gloat. It's not Michael Jordan, not, you know, National Hall of Fame speech or anything like that. But um, I, I, I certainly think that by dismissing, dismissing the, um, dismissing the gravity of the threat and dismissing gravity of white nationalism in particular, um, again, we're, we're simply doing a disservice to national security, um, as well as helping them uh, engage in, engage in hate and also um, um, what very oftentimes they see as a civil war. Many white nationalists see as a civil war. Yeah, what is it? Civil War Two, Electric Boogaloo. Again, mm -hmm. these people just turning it turning into a joke with the you know, Hawaiian shirts, and it's just it is it's almost inscrutable. But yeah, there's a real like what what they're actually up to. But it, there does seem to be a real kind of yeah. scary ideology under there. And that really that you know that's a, that's a, uh, um, also inscrutable, but also really I would say normalization of hate. And so as Alex pointed out too, that there's a range of targets, as I do um, uh, quite deliberately um, point out within the respective chapters on grievances, um, but certainly um, it's the normalization of hate, not only within uh, policies, but also within the rhetoric that I think is also so threatening. So I do discuss disin disinformation um, within the book and how that plays a role and how disinformation is essentially a tool of warfare. Um, uh, but also it's the normalization of the rhetoric um, as we can see today within, within um, politics, that is also a great threat that we should not um, dismiss or undermine. Absolutely. Um, I think this might be a good time to, uh, to, to wind down. All right, Dr. Kamali, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, this has been, this has been fascinating. The book is fascinating. Everybody go out, buy it, read it, internalize it. Uh, and and it, it really, I do think you've, you've done something very important, which is encourage, it encourages critical thought. Uh, and, and today God knows that it is what we need. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for coming on again, Dr. Kamali. Thank you, Dr. Kamali. This was, this was great. Um, thank you so much to each of you. So thank you, Alex. Thank you, Mark. Thank Thank you, Walker. I sincerely appreciate your time and um, keep doing what you're doing. It's uh, been a, it's always a pleasure to speak with each of you. Um, and um, it's heartening to know that there are very important conversations um, taking place. And so, of course, uh, conversations hopefully lead to some type of action. And I would like to end on a note of empowerment to everybody because oftentimes I think you can feel very helpless and just overwhelmed. Um, even people who do the who 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 um, whose job it is to focus on on 
on white nationalism and the, and the political far right more broadly. But um, really, it's just a matter of uh, practicing what one preaches and, and being the change. And I know that sounds kind of hokey, but really, I mean, if it's not going to be us as individuals to reach out across the aisle, whatever that aisle may be, then um, I, I, I would encourage everybody to just be as kind as they want the world to be. Wise words. Thank you very much. Yes, thanks again. <laughs> Thank you so much. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. Published by Opt Out, the anti-corporate news app. Visit optout.news for details.